I'm pretty sure if we uh, dismissed with prayer right now that we could all go home full. Um, I love this church, and I love you. I love working with the leadership that we have with Amy and Adam, with Robin and Bud. It is a privilege and a joy to be a part of the Neighborhood Church. Last few weeks, we've been talking about 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote this letter to the Christians living in this very small church in a very large city. He wanted to encourage them. And last week, we talked about how he was talking about loving them like a mother, a nursing mother loves her young, like a father loves his children and protects them. And what we see over the course of these weeks is that Paul poured himself in to these people. And we're going to pick up tonight. Uh, I'd like for you to stand as I read the scripture for tonight, which comes from 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. Would you stand with me, please? And we, and this is Paul writing this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really was, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we all say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you join me with prayer? Father, uh, you are such a good and beautiful God. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to read your scriptures and find your truth. So, Father, I just pray that this message that you have laid upon my heart is yours. Father, I pray that you will increase and that I will decrease. Father, pray for the people who need to hear this truth. May they have soft hearts and open ears, not just to hear it, But, Father, may it penetrate into their hearts and into their souls deep so that they are transformed to be more like Jesus. Amen. I have a little bit of a sore throat tonight. Uh, We live on the golf course we have for almost 40 years, and I love that the golf course is built for golfers, Don, right? But on weeks like this where it rains and rains and rains, it becomes me and my grandkids' private playground. 
So we spent the afternoon playing in the puddles and the hard rain, and I have a little bit of a sore throat, but I think I'll get through it. So I said we've been in 1 Thessalonians, and there are two things that I would like for us to extract from this scripture tonight. Number one, to accept or to reject the message from God. And number two is Paul calls the people living in the church in Thessalonia to be imitators of the early church. And those are two things that I would like to talk about tonight. Now, I have brought something with me, which, Adam, I just have to have something to bring. I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, um, what do you call that, a visual learner? Amy, you know about that? So I'm appealing to all you visual learners out there. But I have brought something right here, and my good friend John has volunteered to give muscle behind it and pick it up so that you can see what it is. Now, if we put it down here and I lined all of you up and I ask you to go through a line and you had a little slip of paper and I ask you to describe what you see, I would probably get answers like a rock. Not a pretty rock, but a rock. Thank you, John. Did all of y'all see it? Didn't he do a good job? And you wouldn't be wrong, it is a rock. And probably most of you, if it were in a nursery, would pass it up and you would not even see it because it's a plain Jane. It's ordinary. And I understand where you're coming from if you look at my rock and you think that. But you have to understand that when I look at this rock, I see something totally different than what you do. I understand it. You see, this rock has been in my backyard for about 20 years, and I, I brought it out about four days ago to let it get good and dry so that I could bring it in. Kelly thought I was bringing a baby wrapped in a blanket. But I wanted you to see this rock because I wanted to make this point to you. Let me tell you a little bit of history about this rock. My parents grew up in deep east Texas. Um, they met in a little town called Woodlawn, Texas. It is not too far from Lake Caddo, if you've ever heard of that. It is, it's a little town between Jefferson and Marshall, Texas. No one's shaking their heads. I'm like, yeah, that's Greek to me. Uh, but Woodlawn doesn't even have the pleasure of having a, a red light. It is like a community, and that's all. But that's where my folks met. That's where my mom grew up. Uh, my dad passed away three year, years ago at the ripe old age of 97, and Sid and I enjoyed him in our home for the last five and a half years of his life. But one day, about 20 years ago, I was driving my folks out in the country because they used to like to do that. And we were driving around in Woodlawn, and there's not much in Woodlawn, just a lot of woods, a cemetery, a few houses. I think they have one store. We were driving around, and my dad said, we used to live right over here. And I said, Dad, could you find where you used to live? He said, well, I'm not sure. But he started driving up and down the roads, and he found this creek. And he said, ah, I remember this creek because we used to put our milk 
in a container in the creek to keep it cool. Now, he was born in 1917, okay? So we park the car, we get out, and we walk along the creek. And he's walking along, he's saying, I, I, think, I think I remember, I think it was up on a hill, and I, I think it was over in this direction, and we continued to walk. And then he spotted this, this big grouping of daffodils, and it was in the springtime, and they were all in full blooms, and he goes, that was from our front yard. I know we're getting close. And if I remember correctly, the house was just beyond the daffodils. And so we walked up there. Now, Dad was from a very poor family. We used to, well, they referred to themselves as dirt farmers, and I never thought much about that until several years ago. Somebody said, what is a dirt farmer? And I said, well, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah, okay. It's when people work the ground, work the dirt, to make a living to put food on their table. Uh, They were sharecroppers. They would rent land. They would go live on that land, and all ten kids and the two parents would work feverishly to raise crops. They would raise all kinds of crops, but mainly cotton. And so this little two-room house that he described was somewhere around the daffodils, and as we walked around, we found a rock. And we thought, that's really cool. I wonder if this rock was there when your house was there. And then we found another rock. And then we found four cornerstones that held the little house up. So do you see that you can look at this and not see anything? But I can look at it and I can see my connection to my heritage. That I can see where my dad grew up and had life so hard. But this rock is so special to me, but it's not special to a lot of people, and I get that. I understand that. So, referring to the Bible, Jesus is the cornerstone. That's what the Bible tells us. Um, I don't have these on slides, but Ephesians 2.20 says, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Psalms 118.22 says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And I understand the idea, and we can all relate to cornerstones that need to be pretty good stones, right, to hold up the foundation. And builders looked at the cornerstone. They looked at Jesus, and they rejected him because they said, He's ordinary. I don't see anything special in him. So let's throw him out. And that's what the people of his day did. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus actually spoke himself about this. He said, have you ever read in scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so we come down to these two little things that you can do with a cornerstone. You can either accept it, and by that we mean to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior of the world, or you can reject him. And that means that you have heard about him, but you are against him. You push back. Maybe it's because you don't understand 
maybe because you just haven't had that conversion like Paul had, but you reject Jesus. So Paul is saying in this scripture, I'm so glad that when we came here and we're pouring our hearts out to you, that you received it as God's word, not man's word. You received it for what it really is, and that is God. I'm so excited. And Paul loved this church. Paul was a missionary. He traveled in those days when it had to be so difficult to travel. He actually visited on his second missionary trip. He visited this church, and he wrote letters because he wanted them to be encouraged because he knew that the culture liked to reject Jesus, and they pushed against him. But he wanted them to be encouraged that this was God himself speaking, that it was not man-made. And so Paul, he must have been something, right, Aaron? He must have been something. And I say that because Aaron reminds me of Paul a lot with his, with his being so zealous with being able to tell and proclaim the gospel. Luke 10, 16 says this, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So if you kind of let that penetrate a little bit, you kind of see what you're rejecting if you reject Jesus as the cornerstone. And that is you are rejecting the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4, 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. And haven't, hasn't our culture done that? I mean, when I grew up in the 50s, it was cool to be a Christian because well, you went to school and everybody was Christian. Now you go to school and you're a minority. I mean, our culture has changed and and I don't know about you, but sometimes I get my feelings hurt that people look at me and think, she's a Christian, ha, ha, ha. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And at times it seems like the whole culture is doing that to us as Christians. And I have to admit, sometimes I get really, really disappointed in that, in the culture that we live. But then I think back of Jesus' time. Sid and I had the privilege of going to the Holy Lands this last spring. And the way that we like to travel is we rent a car, we take um, cell phones with full batteries, and we get Google Maps, and we go where we want to go. That's the way we like to do it. They kick us out of tours because we just don't condone them. But this time, we were staying in the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, and someone there had told us, oh, yeah, there's so much to see, you know, on the western side, and we had already done that. But they said, you might, if you have an extra day, you might drive over to Golian District, which is the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee, because it's really beautiful. It's not really inhabited. There's not a lot of tourists over there. And so we decided to do that. And as we're driving along, we, we always invite TripAdvisor to come along with us. 
And I decided that I would look up on TripAdvisor and see some of the things to see nearby that we were around. And one thing that popped up was Bethsaida. And I think we've got a slide with this. Now, I remembered Bethsaida was mentioned in the Bible, but I couldn't remember a lot about it. I remembered that Peter and Andrew came from this small village and that it was not too far away from the Sea of Galilee. And TripAdvisor told me that you can go there and you can see the ruins of Bethsaida, this little village. And so Sid and I charted out and we found Bethsaida. It was up on a hill and from any direction, you can see miles and miles and miles around. It had to be a fortress at some times because it's just amazing. And it's not, it's not really tourist-laden. In fact, uh, we were the only ones there until right as we were leaving, one other man was coming in. But we're up on this mountain, and all that's left are these stones, these stones that made little houses and the stones that made little stores. And then you see these streets, but they're not really streets. They're more like paths and, and not very wide, maybe, maybe as, as wide as these steps right here. And then they didn't have curves. They didn't have setbacks. They didn't have zoning. So you might have a house that's built right here and a house that's built just across on the other side of the path. So, they had stones throughout this, and you can see on the slide, this is one of the streets that Jesus would have walked. And let me, let me read you a verse from Luke 9, 10. And he, talking about Jesus, took the apostles and withdrew apart to a city called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and cured those who needed healing. You see, those people had heard about him, word of mouth, that had come from the Sea of Galilee, all the stuff that he was doing, that he was actually healing people, that he was performing miracles, and they heard that he was coming to their village. And so they gathered up their family and their friends and people who had been sick, people who needed some type of healing, and they, they dragged those people out to the street because of this. In Mark six fifty six, it says, wherever he went, talking about Jesus, to a village, a town, or a farm, they laid the sick in the street and begged him to let them simply touch his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Okay, isn't that miraculous? I mean, that is absolutely amazing. You would think that those people, after they saw that, their brother healed, that he, he had a lame leg, now he could walk again. You would think that all those people were just like, hallelujah, follow Jesus. No. The Bible says they still did not believe, even though they had been brought the cornerstone, and they saw that what Jesus did, they heard him speak, they heard him teach, and yet they rejected him. And, and somehow this tension inside me that comes from, from being prose, uh, persecuted as a Christian in our schools and, and around our world, somehow that tension kind of came into focus with in Jesus' day 
the culture was just like ours is today. They rejected him. And for some reason, I was feeling sorry for myself until I looked back. And, and so how does this reconcile itself, the idea that the culture back then was so rejecting Jesus and the culture today in our world rejects Jesus? Well, I have to tell you, they haven't read the end of the story. Amen? Because even in Matthew, Matthew 11, 21, 22, Jesus says, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Now, that's not supposed to really give us comfort, but it does kind of play into the line that we are doing what we need to do as Christians, that we are in a broken world. We are in a world that, that I, I saw a T-shirt not long ago a girl was wearing at the mall, and it said, in my world, you don't exist. And I thought, how that so simplifies our world today. It's all about me, myself, and I. What can bring me pleasure? What can bring me happiness? That's what we seem to be so thriving on in our culture. But at the same time, Jesus lived in a culture that rejected him, and he continued to carry out the plan that his father had for him. And we also can carry out that plan. His world rejected him, and our world rejects him. Uh, there's also a view from the village with the olive trees. I don't know if we've already been there. Just absolutely amazing. Uh, the streets were just outside of the homes, and the next slide. And the last slide, it looks like a pasture, and, and we were actually driving away, that one right there. But if you happen to zoom in to the middle of that and put a little circle around that little thing, that's a random camel that I thought y'all would like to see. He was just out in the pasture. So Paul is so elated that the Christians are accepting what they present as the gospel. He's so, so excited, but it doesn't end there. He challenges them, and we'll pick it up in verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the church of God of Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen. We talked a little bit about us suffering as Christians, as they did from the Jews. And we know the history of that, that they killed Jesus and that they killed the prophets and that they displeased God and opposed all mankind. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, they ran Paul and the rest of the disciples out that they might be saved. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. In our faith and in our everyday living, we should imitate the example of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus, but the prophets and the men and women who have gone before us who lived out a life of faith 
believing in Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I was teaching a Bible study, uh, like an adult Sunday school class on Sunday mornings at at a church uh, that I was on staff. And I had this class, and I began teaching it, and there was always one young lady who sat right here, right on the front row, without fail. Her name was Helen. She was a beautiful young lady, I think about 26. She was, she was very special. She was special needs. And she had more hugs in her than anybody else in that church. And so she would come to class. She would sit on the front row. And I have to tell you, she became a real distraction to me. Because when I would be teaching, and I'd been preparing all week, when I was teaching, I would, I would see her fling her arms, and her hands would go out. And I would see her kind of close her eyes. And, and her speech, her communication was not very good, and, and she would kind of be mumbling things. You really couldn't hear it, but you could see her mumbling. And I was so distracted by Helen. And as I prayed to God, I prayed... Lord, you know I've been working really hard to do this class, but man, she is such a distraction. And then I would go the next week, and I would receive my five or six hugs from her, which melted my heart. And then in class, she would be sitting and waiting, and then her arms would do this thing. And I I kept praying about Helen. You know, when you spend time with God in prayer and you're earnestly seeking him and you're earnestly sharing the, the things that are really on your heart, and if you're still, you can hear God speak back to you. And it was like I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, Helen wants to be like her teacher. And so, the next few Sundays when I would teach Bible study, I noticed that Helen's movement of her arms were exactly what mine were. That if I coughed, there would be a cough. And I noticed that sometimes when I was so into my message and my eyes would close, I noticed that Helen's eyes would close. And, and the more I observed her, the more I saw where when she was speaking, she was, she was kind of speaking like I was. And God said, she wants to be like her teacher. Well, I have to tell you that my whole attitude changed toward Helen. My prayer became, Lord, make me like Helen. I want to be an imitator of yours. I want to study you so much and know all about your life and see what you did and what you said. I want to be like you. I want my gestures to be like you. I want to be like Jesus. And so Paul is calling us as a church to be like the early church, which is something I love about the neighborhood church is that we strive 
to be like the early church, that, that we are not distracted with bigness and greatness, but we are attracted to being like Jesus and being imitators of His. We all need to be like Helen, and I am so grateful that she has been in my life. Is evangelism passive or active? You ever thought about that? For some time now, we, we try to privatize our religion. Um, you know, what I accept as God and my faith, that's mine. I'll keep it private. But is that what the Word of God is saying that we need to do? So is evangelism passive? Or is it active? And as we read more and more about what Paul wrote in his letters to the churches, I, I hope that in your off time that you just read First and Second Thessalonians and get the whole flow of his message to them. How much he loved them. You see, he was pouring into those churches what he knew about God. He had had that dramatic encounter with God himself. And now he was, his life was totally changed, and he wanted everyone to understand what was behind the cornerstone. He wanted to proclaim the gospel so that others' lives would be changed. Not that he would be made great, but that God would be made great. To the glory of God. That's what his motive was. And so he went around and loved on these people. And I can just imagine when he, he finally got in a group of people like this and he just had to be so overjoyed telling them, you know, this is what I've learned. Guys, be encouraged. Continue to do this. The story's not over with yet. Don't you know he was excited just pouring himself into others? So I ask you tonight, where are your Thessalonians? Pastor Adam spoke last week about nursing mothers and fathers. And, and if you've ever just sat and observed that, as I was preparing this week, I couldn't help but think about April. April and Steve had, have taken in a couple of foster kids. And I just love it when April walks through that door over there and she has this little baby with her. And you ain't going to mess with that baby. I mean, she is smiling, but she will do anything to protect those children, right? And Steve provides for them and works for them and keeps them. And they are so protective of those two kiddos that they have brought into their lives. And they're pouring into that little girl and that little boy everything that they know about God. Everything that they know about church, they bring them here. They want them to be exposed to community because they are filling up these little kids' hearts and lives and heads with the knowledge of knowing Jesus and of loving Jesus. 
And it's just a beautiful picture. And so there's a last slide I want to read to you because I really want you to understand what the question is. So like Paul, where are the people that you are investing your life in? Sacrificial living, willing to meet their needs at a beckoned moment, protecting like a nursing mother would her own children, encouraging, imploring, exhorting as a father would. Where are they? Where are the people who would point at you and say, this person, this person has been like a nursing mother to me. This person has been like a father to me. And when they proclaimed the gospel, they knew it was from God because of this person's life. This person has a love for me that goes beyond human love. Where are your Thessalonians? You see, when we're small, like Boston and heaven, we're taking in this, right? Because people are pouring into us. And obviously, you've had people who have poured into your lives or you wouldn't be here tonight. You would not have taken that step to accept Jesus to be Lord of lords in your life. But there comes a point when, like Paul, challenging the people that he poured himself into, we need to go out. It doesn't matter how far on the spiritual journey you had. You can show someone else who's not as far as you are how far you've gotten there, right? You don't have to be 26 and have it all together to be able to start mentoring somebody. You can be in junior high. You can be in high school. You can make a difference. As adults, we need those people in our lives, but we also, having reached maturity in Christ, need to turn around and be able to pour into certain people. Everything that we've experienced with Christ, everything that we know about God. So I love Paul's challenge. Where are your Thessalonians? And I hope you will take and ponder on this tonight because his challenge is to us. Paul says, I've been poured into by people. Barnabas was his mentor. And then Paul turned around and mentored Timothy, somebody older, somebody younger. Elizabeth mentored Mary. But then looking at somebody who's about on the same path as you are, maybe you're looking for an Elizabeth, somebody older who's experienced more of Christ. Maybe you're looking at somebody who's, who's right on the same journey you are, a Martha. And you need that person in your life. But then at the same time, you're looking for a Mary. You're looking for someone younger to pour into. This is discipleship. Amen? 
This is discipleship. This is what we get so excited about. This is how we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as King of kings. This is what it's all about, being disciples of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the truth, the truth of this passage, Father. Thank you that that we can open your word and know without a doubt that it is from you. Father, help us. Help us to become better disciples of yours. Help us to reach out to others that we might help along the way. Paul knew we all needed encouragement. Father, we do. We need to be encouraged. And your word talks about iron sharpening iron and how that's what we are to each other. We live in community. We worship you, Father. We thank you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Go in his peace.